0: Welcome to the brownstein hyatt farber Shrek podcast series. As the first month of Donald Trump's presidency comes to an end, brownstein hyatt farber Shrek's most recent podcast series provides updates on the new administration's impact on crucial issues facing businesses. Brownstein's strategic advisor, Senator Mark Begich, moderates bipartisan discussions with the firm's Washington, DC policy professionals and attorneys on tax and trade, financial services, Immigration, energy, and health care. In this episode, policy directors Michael Levy and Lori Haryu continue their discussion on border adjustability and provide insights on other trade issues, including currency manipulation and NAFTA.
1: Hi, this is Mark Baggage, former senator from Alaska. I'm a strategic advisor for Brownstein, and we're bringing you a series of podcasts on many of the issues that Congress will be dealing with. And not only will you hear about uh, the big topics, but what's happening behind the scenes and probably some information you haven't heard yet. So we're excited to bring these to you. We've been joined this morning by Laurie Haru and Michael Levy uh, to discuss trade, which is a big topic. And let me first say, Michael Levy has been at the Brownstein Firm for a little over 22 years one of the longest, the, the longest member uh, here in the firm, worked on a variety of issues, especially around finance and taxes and trade. Uh, we would consider him the expert around this place to uh, uh, help us understand all these issues. But... He's now joined by the youngest, and I say that in the sense of the membership here, which is fantastic, to have Lori you here, newest member of the Brownstein team. Lori is going to be a little competition for you now. Uh, she has served on the Hill, um, both, in fact, Republican and Michael Democrat, so a nice bipartisan opportunity here. Worked as chief of staff in the office of Kevin Brady, so understands a lot of the tax and trade and a, little, a variety of issues, uh, who was chairman of the House and Ways and Means Committee. So welcome both of you. Uh, Thank you for participating. You know, when we were talking about tax policy in our last podcast, uh, the one that popped up the biggest was the whole idea of border adjustability. But it has a huge trade component of this. You know, people, it kind of crosses over in both. It's tax policy because it raises money, changes the whole way we potentially can collect taxes with regards to business and corporate. But it also has potential impact. We don't know if it's going to, Uh, survive WTO you know we don't know some of those things so give us a sense from you know people say okay if we put that in place I'm going to give you an opposition viewpoint here for a second if we put that in place we're going to limit our ability we'll once again be isolationists. we'll never see us working around the globe give me your thoughts on that maybe Michael you can start and again from a trade perspective how does this help us in trade or how does it hurt us in trade
2: well, I think that's a huge uh, debate, and I think you've raised the- – Which
1: will be the debate, right? It,
2: it will be the debate. So um, most economists, if they were to put this on a blackboard abstractly as, a, as a, um, an equation, they would say that the border adjustability uh, – the cash flow destination border adjustability tax, and it's all of those components, basically over time will have no net effect on trade whatsoever whatsoever. That is to say, currencies around the world will recalibrate and adjust. The dollar will be a little higher. These other currencies will be a little lower. And the volume of trade flows will remain essentially the same. And we would, of course, rebate when we export. Most people in the world who don't think of this as an academic exercise or who have academics and then they also have to sell – say something a little differently. Uh, they say something like, um, or they say different. Uh, markets don't usually calibrate perfectly. Nation states manipulate currencies. A higher dollar actually hurts my product, and I don't really get much of a benefit from the, the border adjustability because I'm not using imported components to begin with. And uh, it 's going to confuse my supply lines because i I buy inputs from all over the world and, uh, and some of them, by the way, from places where you don 't uh, currency adjustments are impossible. Puerto Rico, for example, if it's subject to this tax, and it may well be subject to this tax, Puerto Rico has a dollar-based economy, so it can't adjust. Costa Rica has its own currency, but it's pegged to the dollar. It can't adjust, or it has to go off the dollar peg, which has been integral to their monetary stability. So over time... Uh, most of the entities that are dependent upon trade are very frightened by this. Most of the economists who study it abstractly are quite sanguine about it. And it is very interesting the sanguine nature of, of the economists' responses shared on the left and on the right.
1: Let me ask you something, Lori. I know I've seen this now on this issue. There is a – you know, the House has – the position they've shifted, you know, they're they're looking at the Senate. You know, how do they take it? And there's already Republican senators who are opposed to this whole idea because their their position is it hurts consumers, right or wrong. That's what they believe. So now you have this battle that's already brewing, not even Democrat versus Republican, but Republican versus Republican. How do you see that pathway? I, I see the House, you know, resolving it, but the Senate is its own ball of wax. What what do you see kind of happening there?
3: Well, I think um, we will will follow the (laughs) legislative process as laid out by the Constitution, (laughs) which is, you know, the House will pass their bill, the Senate will either, you know, accept our bill and then change it however they want to or they right. come up with their own bill and then they'll have a conference and they'll do, talk do, about do it and obviously think, the administration will be involved also. Do you think
1: this will be something and maybe both of you could respond to this but Laurie I'll start with you and that is I know when I was in caucus and Democratic side, and we were working on issues, you know we tried to find on these big ones. How do we resolve our differences, and then come to the floor and you know vote as a block or in some way? Do you think this is one that may be greatly debated in the Senate Republican caucus. Can they get to some sort of agreement among themselves on this one? It's such a big issue that without it, tax policy or trade or all these issues get kind of jammed up.
3: Well, I think all I can really go on is on past history, which is um, Chairman Brady and Chairman Hatch have developed a really close relationship, working
1: relationship. Which makes a big difference.
3: Yes, it does. I mean, they meet every couple of weeks. They talk about what they're working on, where they're working on going forward, um, where they can work together. And um, Chairman Brady has said, whether it's to private industry, any of the stakeholders or to anyone else on Capitol Hill. I want you to come in and talk to me. I want, you know, let's find a way to make this work. I understand you can't pivot on a dime. And um, I understand your concerns. Help me design a system that will work for all of us, but yet get us to comprehensive tax reform.
1: Let me ask you, you mentioned it, Michael, um, and that is in this issue of dealing with border adjustability, the currency issues. And the Trump administration just laid out uh, one of their executive orders was ask every uh, department to look at what they can do around um, uh, currency, or what 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 ability they can do on this. That's been a you know the Democrats talked a lot about it for a couple of years during the campaign. Trump talked about it a lot, and it's now kind of this: is it a bipartisan issue? Is it not? But the issue of currency manipulation or currency, yeah. what what what's the? I mean, Trump is you know President Trump has said, "I want something done on this." I'm going to ask my staff and right. departments to do something, but nothing's yet come. Obviously, so, so the,
2: uh, to me, the most interesting thing, the executive order, is is a step back from the campaign rhetoric. So the campaign rhetoric was all about Chinese currency manipulation and how he would retaliate with tariffs against Chinese currency manipulation. Right. The executive order requires all agencies to look at currency manipulation across all the economies of the world and what solutions are available. So he didn't single out China. Mm-hmm. Most economists who look at Chinese currency manipulation will say the following, that for a substantial amount of time after China was allowed into the, the WTO in some form or fashion, uh, they, they manipulated their currency as much as 20 percent in a downward fashion. Probably now they've manipulated upward, close to eight or nine percent, and and which works in our favor. And the reason is that Chinese banks are relatively unstable, and they don't want any run on their currency. And in the long run, one of their goals is to be a competing currency with the dollar, which now they could not possibly do because their banking system is much much too uh, volatile, to sustain and, and badly regulated to sustain that. So um, I think there's a certain um backing away from a strategy of going after Chinese currency manipulation because probably right now the the Yuan is 8 percent overvalued, not 20 percent undervalued. Do you think the the,
1: the uh, Trump administration maybe this is one of those things where they put out to their departments and it kind of disappears in the you know, in the dust out there and no one really brings it back as a big policy? Or do you think it's going to pop up at some point. It seems like it went out there and then that was it. It was kind of like, okay, I've done my campaign pitch, now I'm moving on to some other issues.
2: I I think that um, and I'll defer to Laurie on this in a second, but I think that the Right now, the Trump administration is trying to work through what its strategy is toward Russia, what its strategy is toward China, and how the two intersect. And all this is going to flitter around out there until they've decided. this might be a
1: tool, but not yet utilized. Yeah, that's right. Laurie, on on currency manipulation, uh, currency issues, it seemed like, at least during my time in the Senate and even more recently, it seemed like the Senate was always kind of on this Path uh, talking about it all the time. It seemed like every week there was someone on the floor of the Senate talking about something China was doing in regards to currency manipulation. That was highlighted during the campaign. H- how big of an issue do you think this is for House leadership, uh, current House leadership, Republican leadership, as an important issue, or or maybe it's not? And how does it? Do you think it has a trade? You know, is it important in their trade conversation that this be on the table or is it just not a priority over there? What's your sense?
3: Well, I think right now, similar to what um, Michael said about the the administration, right now they're just focused on... ACA repeal mm-hmm. replace and the budgets and reconciliation tax reform so
1: currency is kind of over there in the corner right now
3: well it is I mean it will always be a converse, part of the conversation on trade they know that you know they have a significant number of members on the Republican side interested in it as well as a lot of Democrats so, um, so but you know there's it, also there's if we're focused on one country they can focus on what do we do to you know adjust our currency here in the United States so
1: so, you know, talking about trade, one of the big issues, you know, we had um, toward toward the last part of last year and the latter part of the President Obama's administration was TPP. President Trump comes in, that's off the table. Now you have uh, uh, Wilbur Ross who. Um, it's going through the process now to be Secretary of uh, Commerce, and the view is no longer are these multilateral, it's going to be bilateral kind of trade. I mean, a dramatic shift from multiple countries and working together. How, how successful, obviously that's going to take Senate and work within Congress, how successful do you think that strategy will be? And then uh, from that, where do you think the first target is? Who, who's the first country that might be the likely? Laurie, do you have any thought on that or Michael?
3: Well, I think with Prime Minister Abe's visit here this week, I, I think that was probably a topic of conversation. Um, I don't I'm not privy to what their their first targets will be, um, but I know that they were also asking for input from Congress. You know, which countries do you think we should start um, by our uh, bilateral negotiations with? And obviously um, they're looking to update NAFTA. so Canada and Mexico, that would be probably one of the primary, primary targets. I'd add
2: one more in there that I think may be the first out of the box except for the beginnings of some kind of NAFTA renegotiation and that is England uh, England having or it used to be called the United Kingdom I think it may still survive like that but uh, I'm not confident but, but uh, Theresa May is desperate for a bilateral agreement with the United States Uh, She needs that in order to enhance her ability to have strong bilateral agreements with the other European countries because she's pulling out not only the EU but the European common market. So uh, as a gesture of friendship and as an important way for him, for the new president to begin his bilateral trade strategy, I think England will be the first one out of the box. And I think it will be probably a pretty good one. I do question, though the underlying premise that it's always better to go bilateral than multilateral. Uh, In most administrations, we've done both. And in many ways, the reason we do bilateral is to set the stage then for a better multilateral. And the problem with the bilateral is that if we have an agreement with Korea, which we already have, and we have an agreement with Japan, which we probably at some point will have, we have an agreement with Japan that's pretty good. We have an agreement with Korea that's pretty good. But they don't have an agreement with each other. And so they don't play with each other by the same rules, and they have access to our market, but they may may not have access to the Japanese market or the Japanese to the Korean market, which then puts more pressure on them to grow by getting more and more access to our market. So bilateral agreements in general… If you have a dispute resolution mechanism that you have confidence in, that is to say it's not being gamed by jurists from other countries, which I think is an interesting conversation. But if that probably from an economic efficiency standpoint is better for all countries involved. Uh, so I think it's probably – I think he's backed himself into this corner, but I don't think it's the right corner to be backed into. In addition to that, tr- free, free trade is really one of the bedrock – Relationships that underpins NATO. And it's been the key to our geopolitical strategy to get China to come into the world system on our terms, not on their terms. We've given up that very important chip in walking out of the TPP. Hillary Clinton might have done that. She certainly said she would. I never believed it, but she might have. Uh, Bernie Sanders clearly would Hillary have. Would have so, so I think that the, the political tone of the time is such that TTP was somewhat threatened. But I would say overwhelmingly most Republicans in Congress would have supported TPP and probably uh, half of the Democrats. So it's a a geopolitical step back, ironically.
1: You know, we think about trade and, you know, most, again, Americans are not as focused on it, except in the sense of where are jobs going, you know, overseas, and is that because trade or, you know, they, it kind of gets all convoluted. Where do you think, let's say we have a, a, a new arrangement with, uh, through NAFTA, through with with Mexico and Canada, and or we have a new agreement with the UK, where do you think the administration is going to focus to try to get the gains? What, what is the, 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 the push, you might say, you know, is it just, we just want to trade, or is it we want to protect what's her. what's the target, do you think, or what is the sense? And where do you think Congress will be on these things? I mean, uh, it's a tough one. It's a crystal ball question because it's complicated. I'll give you an answer for NAFTA
2: because I think that's okay. the clearest one to me. I don't think the rest of them, you know, are going to be – we're going to gain or lose very much. In NAFTA, the focus is on manufacturing, right? We've lost textile jobs. We've lost some steel jobs. We've probably lost some automobile jobs. I don't think there's going to be a big change in most of those things. And those kinds of things are affected also immensely by currency. So, I think where we, we will really gain in NAFTA, and I don't know if it, American workers will gain anything by it. They may, but they may not. Is I think well, the
1: perception by everyone after this campaign is changing NAFTA means more jobs for Americans. I understand. But that's right. – I mean, just, I'm, I'm purposely not addressing that. Yeah. <laughs> so,
2: so I think that the, the one of the parts of NAFTA that really wasn't about free trade at all was the oil and gas sector. Mm-hmm. And I think um, that um, the Mexicans desperately need now American expertise, American capital, American multinational know-how. We're just better at this – than most other countries, maybe all other countries in the world. BP, you know, is a British company. But, but we're really very, very good at it. And they are getting to the point where they can't get at their next marginal set of profitable reserves. They don't have the capital. They don't have the know-how. So I think they're going to – they want to open up uh, U.S. access to their energy markets, which has always been a no-no since the 1930s when they nationalized the industry. And they need an excuse to do it. And this will give them that excuse. And the U.S. oil and gas industry will love it. Now, whether that leads to more jobs in the oil patch, more jobs in the in the industries that, you know, iron and steel, you know, oil country tubular iron and steel, all that, I don't know. I, maybe it'll be done in Mexico. Maybe it'll be done here. And um, it also, it, it may flood the... Uh, the world's uh, oil markets, and we may may make areas like the Bakken less profitable in the U.S. So Which I don't know how to negative exactly. Impact. So I don't know how to play out for U.S. workers, but I think U.S. oil and gas companies will profit from it, and I think the Mexican economy will profit. from Laurie,
1: it. Laurie, NAFTA. I mean, this is you know it's interesting. Uh, Labor Democrats were always against NAFTA for their reasons. Then this year, election year, everyone was against NAFTA suddenly. You know, the people who used to be for it were now against it. And it sounds almost like people are saying under their breath, we're going to tweak it. We're not radically changing it. What do you think in the House or in the Senate, the Republicans, what what do you think they're thinking on this? I mean, because most are free traders. You know, they want to trade. But on the flip side, this election cycle has kind of turned things upside down in a lot of ways.
3: I think most of them view it as it's logical to update NAFTA. Yeah, to it's make been it a couple
1: yeah, decades. So.
3: Yes, it's been a couple decades. And um, I think we probably tend to look at it as we're just going to update it and make it more relevant to the 21st century. Right. And, um, you know, and if it helps American jobs, great. I mean, that will certainly be the... The, the, the point and the hope but I agree with Michael whether it is it actually ends up doing that I don't no, know. It's, it's yeah. very
2: hard to calculate whether NAFTA cost us any real jobs or not. Uh, probably it cost us some jobs and we gained some jobs yes. and the people who lost the jobs weren't the same people who gained the jobs
1: Different sectors gained it's, and different, exactly different sectors lost. Sectors,
2: different skill types right, right? Uh, In addition to that it happened at precisely the same time where American companies are beginning to produce things for foreign markets like Automobiles, which we hardly ever produce for foreign markets. So if you're going to produce a small car that very few Americans drive, the American company might well prefer to do that in Mexico rather than in China. And and in many ways, that was the, the trade-off. And so one of the reasons we did that— So NAFTA, maybe
1: there was that process of already moving, but well, then said, was a lot here's better, a choice. Absolutely. NAFTA seems a better deal. I mean, if,
2: prior to NAFTA, everyone screamed and yelled about the Macaridor program, which had been in place since the 1950s. And, and that was uh, uh, already a system for bringing jobs to the border and matching a U.S. plant with a, a Mexican plant, right? So it already took it out of Massachusetts or took it out of Michigan or, or Ohio for whatever, or whatever. I mean, Ohio lost a ton of auto jobs, but they largely lost them to Mexico prior to NAFTA. And you, can, uh, Cleveland lost its steel industry prior to NAFTA. So a lot of what we focus on is being NAFTA. Uh, was has very little to do with NAFTA. Now we really did lose jobs in the in the two thousands to China. Uh, still not. I mean, as total of U.S. jobs, but it wasn't uh, related to NAFTA. Not, not primarily. Right. NAFTA.
1: What do you do? You think in in the trade debate that's happening? And, and again, uh, you know, here at Brownstein we uh, work with not only domestic companies but international companies, you know, they're all kind of watching this issue. Do you think there is a potential if we go, and I say we collectively as a country, go too far on being too restrictive in our trade that there will be retaliation by other countries in our goods that we finally, you know, like you brought up the auto industry, which is a really good point, that we sell more cars overseas now than we used to for many years. And is that, do you think there's a risk of that out there, Lori, in the sense of, the international economy saying, "Okay, U.S. wants to be protective of their economy and close the doors. Then we're going to do the same in X company country or Y country." Do you think that's a a risk? And do you think the elected officials on the Hill are thinking about that as a as a risk factor? I guess.
3: Oh, certainly, particularly those who are involved in the trade realm. You know, the Ways and Means members and the Finance members. They they think about that you know a lot. How will this you know, work out and we'll be subject to retaliation. Um,
1: Do you think it's a reality that – or is it more of a just a risk factor that has to be accounted for but countries will say it but maybe not do it?
3: Oh, I think it's a reality. It's a reality. I I mean, there's been – Many cases where you know others have retaliated against us. So and you know if you weren't part of the industry that was affected by that retaliation, you're probably not even aware of it. Most Americans wouldn't be aware right. of it.
1: So it is a, it's a, it's a risk that as we think of trade policy. How does it affect the countries that do business with the U.S. and with U.S. companies or companies that are both U.S. and international-based,
2: right? Uh, in, in trade talk, this is called mirror legislation. You do it. Look in the mirror because it's coming back at you. <laughs> and and in, the, in the 1930s, this is exactly what happened. So we passed the Smoot-Hawley tariff after there were some tariff barriers abroad. Then every country in the world retaliated against smoot Holly, and and the next thing you know, f- trade volumes shrink to nothing. And then President Roosevelt tries very hard in the, in the middle to late 30s, coming in and having inherited that, to move toward a series of bilateral agreements that again grow interdependency and grow trade. And we've been on that trajectory now since the early 1930s. And so the question is now: Have we reached a new level of globalization that's so intense that the politics of the world's countries can't sustain it? And I think that's a huge question for our trade policy and our geopolitics.
3: And if I could quote one of my former bosses, he was a well-renowned free trader, Phil Crane. Mm-hmm. And um, he he, he used to say, because he did a lot of – he used to be a history professor and, at a university. And he would say, when he was talking about smoot Holly or any kind of protectionism – that um, protectionism hurts most the worker who makes his living by the sweat of his brow.
1: There we go. Well, it's a good way to end the discussion on trade. And again, uh, both to Michael Laurie, thank you very much for participating in this. And again, a series that we're doing here on different podcasts from the Brownstein Firm. And trade is always and will be a topic of discussion. And I know a lot of our clients are interested in this issue. So thank you very much for participating today.
0: Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek podcast series. Visit www.bhfs.com for more information.